This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, I was gonna evacuate the colony, but then I got high. Hello everyone, I am Gap and I'm joined as always by my good friend Dr. Izix. Hi, I'm half dead, don't mind me. <laughs> yes, everyone has been sick. Uh, everyone's been dying, but it's great because it's Monday and that means it's time for Watches of Tomorrow. The sci-fi review show where everyone is sick. Yeah, we're going to have plagues and everything's going to be awful, but wait a moment. Wait, today's episode's kind of the reverse of that. Uh, everyone's yeah. feeling groovy. Everyone's groovy. I've been listening to 60s music all week just to get in the mindset for this one. Oh, you know, I, I should have played some rock band. Uh, I got the, the Beatles rock band. I should probably just spend all yesterday doing that. Oh, yeah. Why didn't you? I know that we, we record these things a few weeks in advance of when they go out, but it's just weird to me that, like, it seems like every single person that I know or work with or talk to has been ill in the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. Even though most people that I work with remotely live, like, you know, halfway across the country. Now, it's very uh, weird. Now, admittedly, I, I was hanging out with some people that I, I know that were from other parts of the country recently, so that may, may have something to do with my particular illness. <laughs> Maybe. There's some sort of plague this spreading itself across the United States at the minute. So. Yeah, if you are, you're going to be listening to this in the future if you are listening at all. Uh, and if you're not listening, that might mean that you're dead. And uh, then, then we're all been wiped out. And uh, you know, we this is a this is a, a, a voices of the last civilization of recording going out into the ether that is going to be forgotten for for, for all time. But, uh, but yes. hopefully, we're not all dead by the fat future time. So hopefully. <laughs> oh, this week, getting on topic. Oh yeah. <laughs> this week we watched the Star Trek original series episode This Side of Paradise. Nice. Wait, which side is it? I don't know which side it is. Okay. You're going to say it's the right side. There we go. The uh, title is the same as possibly taken from an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, This Side of Paradise, which in turn was taken from a poem by Robert Bookie. Don't know who that is. Uh, apparently, it's a it's a poem called uh, "Tair Tahadi," which is um, like a, I think it's about his time living in like Thailand. Oh, cool. Or possibly somewhere in the like Pacific Islands. I'm not sure which it was. I was having trouble finding information of the poem. The poem itself is kind of about being mellow and relaxed and liking people. And there's some there's like a a line about flowers and something about this side of paradise in there. So I guess. I guess some of the themes in the episode might have actually been in this poem. Yeah, it fits very much so. Hmm. Yeah, a lot. So the the book, This Side of Paradise, I don't know how much that has to do with the episode itself. It's kind of like supposed to be a novel about young people after World War One being kind of unhappy with life. Ah, yes, the post-war doldrums. Which I suppose you could draw a parallel since this is this episode's very much set in some reactions to world war ii and vietnam but there's there's some weird really 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 weird messaging in this episode a bit yeah 
We'll, we'll get into that, I think. <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't get over it. I've been talking this over with people all week because it's just such a strange one. I even I wrote I wrote a uh, an email to my mother who grew up watching Star Trek and lived through this time period just to get a, like, am I missing something? in this episode is there context here that just doesn't translate well to the modern day yeah apparently i was not missing much all right yeah so this episode is another one uh written by dc fontana mm-hmm. um, she did some rewrites of the original story and is responsible for putting in some of the more romantic elements that we'll get into Yes, there is some romance here, and involving surprising characters. Oh my! Yes, the original the original story was called "The Way of the Spores." I think I like this the, the actual title better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then it went through some rewrites by Disney Fontana, whose whose credit is the main author of this story. Also, uh, Jerry Scholl, who in this episode is using a pseudonym. It's like it was uh, let's just say Nathan Butler. Yes. I'm not then, sure why everyone in these uses pseudonyms, but oh well. The uh, Shoal here was uh, also involved in the Corbinite Maneuver, and uh, there's another episode that comes later, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yes. Uh, we've only got two major guest stars this week. Mm-hmm. We've got Frank Overton playing Elias Sandoval. Sandov- Sandoval. 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 There we go. Oh. Wow, I, I know the name from uh, you know, uh, Deus Ex: Human Revolution. Good, my notes. I just I cannot read names when I note them down. I know that now that you say it, I know they said it like five times in the episode. Right. Sign them all. Just, get in here. <laughs> yeah, and now I couldn't remember for some reason. Ugh. And then we also have uh, Jill Ireland playing uh, uh, Layla. Yeah, Jill Ireland playing Layla. Uh, Komali, who I don't even know if they ever say her last name. I don't recall her hearing it. Well, that's about it. There's, you know, a few crew members, a few crew members, a few random side characters. These are the two major actors who anyone at the time period would have known. Indeed. Um, I don't know them, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I suppose we should jump in because there's not a, we've been going on for way too long about nothing at the beginning of this episode. Well, it happens, you know. Yes, it does. Let's go, let's go, let's go. All right. We join the Enterprise as it arrives at Omicron SETI 3. I I did not realize how much of a Star Trek reference the Omicronians in Futurama were. Yes. It's like, it's Omicron SETI, not Omicron Persei. Well, just the naming convention that they use for planets in this series. Yes. So we're at Omicron SETI 3 to check on a colony that has probably been destroyed by a natural phenomenon on the planet called Berthold Rays. Yeah, I, I, I didn't quite figure out the spelling for that. I just sort of called it the Rays eventually, but the uh, uh, several attempts at spelling were like uh, Bertram Rays, Bertrold Rays, Bertrol Rays. <laughs> yeah, you, they, they slur every time they say it. And then I'm, I'm taking this... Berthold rays from the transcripts, but oh. I don't know where they got the spelling from either. So, it's these crazy rays you like disintegrate people after a long exposure, but like it takes a week or something. <laughs> it's apparently some sort of natural phenomenon that will degrade living tissue after prolonged exposure. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Sulu, and some randoms beam down to the planet, 
in what looks like an abandoned California farm. Yeah, yes, yeah. I guess it's convenient. They're filming in California, so... <laughs> Kirk soliloquizes over the loss of life and how horrible it is that they just, you know, built this this community and then all died out and then a group of three people show up and go yeah we're we're here we're not dead yet i ain't dead the leader of the men introduces himself as elias sandoval we then hit credits (laughs) after which elias explains that while they've been living quite happily on this planet their subspace radio has been broken which is why they have not contacted earth in three years Oh, that seems weirdly convenient. McCoy observes that Elias and the others are alive. Yeah, they're not zombies, so that's good. <laughs> Which, this is the best doctoring we've got uh, from McCoy all season. <laughs> I may just be a simple country doctor, but I'm pretty sure them folks is alive. <laughs> it's fantastic, actually. <laughs> there are, despite how weird this episode gets, there is a lot of really good comedy coming from McCoy in this one. Yes. It's probably uh, one of his better episodes. Indeed. You know, uh, you know we'll get into more of the, the you know, funky business later, but it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Spock says that with the concentration of Berthold rays that they have on the planet, none of the colonists should actually still be living. Sulu asks if maybe they're not. Oh no, maybe they aren't alive. No one dignifies that with a response. <laughs> The crew see the colonists doing a lot of, you know, farming things, wholesome outdoor activities like wood chopping and digging in dirt and whatever. Well, generally being rustic. So they get a little tour of the colony. Elias introduces Layla, who we are told through music and camera zooms that she knows Spock. And there's also soft lighting. Oh no, this means soft something lighting, important is happening. Romantic right? music. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's got got all the got all the flair here. Elias explains to us the philosophy of the colony that they founded this with the idea that men should lead simple, less complicated lives, free of technology, and they don't have you know vehicles or weapons or complicated equipment. They just living off the land, type okay, people. This reminds me of something, but maybe I'll get to that later. Yeah, something that starts with a C, ends in an Amun. I was actually thinking about a different episode of Star Trek, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kirk wants to look around and do a few tests on the colony, and Elias says that they should all make themselves at home. Sulu and a couple of crewmen go off to explore the farm, but Sulu laments that he wouldn't know what he was looking for, even if it were sitting right next to him as he stands next to some sort of alien plant thing. Now, 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 wait a moment. Isn't Sulu like the plant guy? Yeah, Sulu's the plant dude, but he like is basically tripping over this weird plant. It's like, I wouldn't even know where to start looking for something. Hmm. He does discover that the barn doesn't have cows in it. Oh, well, I guess they're um, storing their cows in, in uh, the houses then, right? Well, so I don't know the most about farms, but barns are not cow houses. Usually, it's maybe a place where you keep your horses, perhaps, uh, but not even necessarily then. Yeah, but also it's like like hay storage and equipment storage. They yeah. say like, oh, they're using this barn for storage, not for cows. It's like, well, that is what a barn is for. So, so far, the crew, like, doesn't know anything about farming. And like we seem to know more about farming. <laughs> yeah, and Sulu doesn't know anything about plants. Hmm. So... 
So, yeah. so everyone's losing the memories. Okay, we got that. <laughs> Sulu remembers after this that they have actually seen no animals on this planet. Well, that's weird. They keep bringing this up as the only thing wrong. Yeah. Every time they mention, like, this colony is weird, there's no animals. Something strange is going on. There's no animals. This is very important, guys. Remember, there's no animals. In another room, Elias and Leah are discussing Spock and how Leah loved him once, but Spock, being a Vulcan, can't reciprocate that love. This seems like something that she should have like figured out at some point, you know. Like that seems like it. she did at some juncture in their past relationship. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, obviously, then she's gotten over him, right? Yeah. Elias asks if she wants Spock to stay, and she says that he has no choice. Dun dun dun. Oh, McCoy's medical examinations, in the meantime, have discovered that everyone on the planet is in weirdly perfect health. Like, crazy perfect. Like, you should have scar tissue, but you don't. Elias says that they don't have weaklings on this planet. That's a horrible way to put that. But... Wait, well, are we going back to the, you know, the crazy eugenic Superman again? Oh no! I don't know what they're going to. Outside, Elias tells Kirk that it's because of the soil that they grow things in. That That's the only explanation we get at this point. Cool. It, it doesn't make any sense. How else do you survive the deadly space rays? But, you know. One of the crew confirms that they have indeed seen crops. So, you know, it checks out. They're growing things. Okay, they're able to feed themselves. Good. <laughs> but they only planted enough to feed themselves. And he finds this odd. So they're kind of lazy then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How dare these farmers plant enough to feed themselves and not create an excess that they apparently have no use for since they're only farming to feed themselves. Yeah. Uh, we, sh we should probably also point out that this planet's like has a perfect climate. So it's like just enough rain to keep the crops in good shape. Just enough sun to keep them in good shape. It's not doesn't get too cold. Doesn't get too hot. It's just perfect temperatures all year long. Spock is off exploring a field and discovers that there are not even insects on the planet. Like, there's no animals at all, which you wonder how this ecosystem is functioning with no insects, but... It's probably some sort of weird alien thing, right? But unless they brought their crops with them from Earth. Um, hmm. Never mind then. He keeps wondering how the colonists and plants have survived the deadly, deadly radiation. Leah, Leah says that she can explain, but she keeps flirting with Spock instead. But Spock is much more interested in talking about how they should all die. You're all doomed. We're all doomed. This this doesn't make any logical sense. Um, You got, got any answers, lady? Back on the farm, we keep going back and forth, and it's confusing as sin. But <laughs> There's a lot, lot of jumps here. Back on the farm, Kirk has received orders that they have to evacuate the colony, but Elias refuses because they are not in any danger, which he's right. Yeah, everything seems fine, actually. <laughs> Kirk and McCoy are really insistent about leaving, but Elias still just, you know, flat out refuses because there's no reason to. Like, well, we're not dead after several years living here. What's the danger? Back outside, Leah has led Spock to some flowers that she says give life, peace, and love. Spock calls this a happiness pill and says no such thing can exist, but then the flower sprays a bunch of sparkly stuff onto him. Bamf. He gets a spray of happiness straight to the face. <laughs> She's gonna spray this happiness all over you. Just hold still. <laughs> Spock devils over in pain. 
Leia keeps saying that it didn't hurt any of them, but Spock says he's not like you, but then he just is fine after, and I guess we're not going to address that. Yeah, uh, yeah Leila also says that he now belongs to all of us. Yes. Hmm. Uh, he gets to his feet, he gets a big smile on his face, proclaims his love for Leia, and kisses her. Oh. So I, I guess Spock is now in love, somehow. Yes, Spock hmm. in love. Kirk is back at arguing with Elias, who again points out that they don't need to evacuate because they're not in any danger. But Kirk has his orders, and he says he's going to carry out those orders, no matter if they make sense or not. Um, Kirk, not, not yeah, this isn't quite like this, the same sort of situation, but, uh, you know, removing people from the land they've settled and have been living there for a while... Just for whatever, yeah, and then just, you know, for whatever reasons, it just sort of claims, like, oh, I'm following orders. It's kind of a dick move. Yeah, a little bit. Sulu returns, says everything seems pretty normal everywhere else, but he hasn't seen Spock in a while. Kirk calls Spock in the communicator, but Spock is way too busy looking at clouds. And uh, we, we find out here that uh, Spock has, uh, you know, has encountered a dragon, but has never before looked at clouds before. He eventually bothers to answer his communicator and just says, what do you want? It's like, yeah, whatever. What do you want, man? What do you want? Yeah. Kirk is very vexed by this. Then Spock continues to answer very flippantly, even refusing to tell Kirk where he is and just eventually drops the communicator and starts making out with Leia. Eh, whatever. Whatever on the phone, man. Let's get, let's, let's get back on, eh? Kirk and McCoy have some banter about Spock. And it's like, well, you told him to mellow out. McCoy's like, uh, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> then they go off looking for Spock because they can follow his communicator signal. You they see? find the communicator and then find that Spock is hanging upside down out of a tree laughing. Oh, he, he seems to be having fun. Wait a moment. This is shocking. The gall of this. We cut back to the farm where McCoy is getting ready to beam equipment to the ship. And a crewman brings him a bunch of the flowers, and he says they are very interesting. How interesting? Pretty interesting, but not interesting enough for us to see. We go back to Kirk and Spock, who is like, Kirk's just deeply confused by how Spock isn't cooperating. Kirk even tells Sulu to arrest him. But then Spock leads them over to a group of flowers that just spore everybody. Except for Kirk, who just is just kind of slightly out of range of the, uh, the the blast there. I couldn't quite tell if he didn't get hit or if he just wasn't affected. It was a weird, eh. Like some of the spores like hit his his arm, but like it gets a full blast on Sulu and the other guy. So yeah. So I guess it's supposed to sort of imply that you know they just kind of missed him barely this time. Maybe. Regardless of what happens, Kirk's not affected by the flowers, but Sulu and the other crewmen get really happy. Well. It's not the first time Sulu's gone strange on us. Kirk finally finds McCoy, who has now gone really southern for some reason. Like, super southern. Yeah, like, really, really southern. The southern gentleman's just gonna have himself a heck of a good time here. Don't mind me. McCoy has been beaming flowers up to the ship. The transporter room calls down, sounding very, very relaxed. And Kirk uh -oh. decides that he needs to return to the ship. Good idea, Kirk. Otherwise, everyone's, you know... Yeah, something something strange is going on in your ship. Yeah, go, go check it out. Ahura seems to have also been affected by the flowers on the bridge, and she has disabled the ship's communications. Because reasons. <laughs> yep. No real reason, just because. 
So, so th- th- this little bit point, you know, kind of makes me sort of wonder about some stuff, but I'll go into that later. Kirk finds one of the flowers on the bridge, and he then finds that most of the crew are in line for the transporter. He orders them to all return to their stations, but they flat out refuse. He calls them like, this is, a, this is mutiny, and the guy's like, yeah? We have a captain's log. The spores have spread all over the ship, and all of the crew is leaving, though Kirk is still not affected for some reason. And he does point out that the uh, spores seem to have been uh, spread via the ventilation system. Yeah, so the spores are just everywhere right now. But apparently Kirk doesn't need to breathe, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Kirk tries to get McCoy to run tests to figure out how to counteract the spores, but McCoy goes, why would I ever want to do that? Um... Because you're the doctor, McCoy? But, like, at this I agree with him. Is he's like, hey, everyone's, like, really happy and healthy enough that they're regrowing organs, <laughs> and you want me to, like, stop this. Hmm. Um, no. <laughs> Back on the planet, Kirk confronts Spock and Elias, who want Kirk to join them in, you know, being happy and content. Join us. One of us. One of us. Google gobble. <laughs> Kirk asks about the spores, and Spock says that they originated in space, but landed on this planet where they thrived off of the Berthold race. The spores, you know, stay on the plants until they inhabit a human body, which that seems weirdly specific, but okay, gives them health and peace of mind. And protects them from the space radiation. Cool, but poor cows. Yeah, why didn't they do it with the cows? I guess cows are already pretty content. Yeah, they're just kind of chilling, you know. Maybe there's a limit to how chill something can be. Kirk specifically asks if this is the paradise that they wanted, and they say, yeah, it definitely is. We have everything we need, and we're pretty happy. So, yeah, it's it's paradise. It's cool, man. Let's, let's, leave us be, man. Come on, dude. Kirk says that without anything for them to want or strive for, they will lack ambition and cannot thrive without ambition. You're talking about stagnation here. Hmm. Well, I guess you got a little bit of a point, but it also kind of kind of comes with a, a, a long-term decay, but there's no real indication of that here, guy. Kirk returns to the ship where he can struggle and have ambition alone. Yes. <laughs> yes. On the bridge, he leaves a very sad captain's log about how his crew are happy and they've abandoned him because he's angry and alone. He talks about how marooned he is and yeah. you know, just he can't run the ship himself. And, uh, and so it's all like su- super depression, Kirk Act. He gets sprayed by a flower that he left on the bridge earlier. And then he suddenly looks all happy and contacts Spock and says, I've joined you. And he's going to come down soon after he's packed a bit. Bam. Kirk starts packing up his quarters, including looking at a medal that makes him a little bit upset for some reason. It's not entirely clear why. Yeah. Then again, don't, don't you remember in that the, 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 the previous episode where he has like 58,000 uh, commentations, right? Yep. Why does he only have one medal on the ship? (laughs) (laughs) As soon as he's about to beam down, he gets really, really angry about leaving the ship and then suddenly goes like, oh my God, violent emotions can kill the spores. Again, violence has saved the day. Hooray, if we just figure out a different way to punch things, we could be successful. (laughs) Yeah, hooray. Kirk tricks Spock into beaming aboard and tells him that they need to bring a lot of equipment down to the planet. Once Spock comes on the ship in order to help, Kirk says a lot of really, really racist things to him, calls him a computer and a half-breed, and insults his mother and father. And Spock's like, my, my mom's like a teacher, my, my dad's an ambassador, they're pretty cool. Like, could you, like, chill out, man? Spock finally gets upset, 
throws Kirk around the transporter room for a bit and is about to smash his brains in with a chair when he goes back to normal. Wait a moment. I am myself again. I know. We were just like, do it, do it, do it, do it, Spock. No, Spock, don't stop. What are you doing? You almost had him. <laughs> you could have been captain, and then you could have gone back to the plan and been chill with everybody. Spock now wants to help Kirk get rid of all the spores, so they rig up a thingy-bob. Yes, uh, involving uh, ultrasonic waves or something like that. Yeah, they're going to send out an annoying sound through the communicators that's going to make everyone on the planet angry. Yes. But they take so long to, you know, set up everything that Layla has to check in on them, and she wants to come aboard. As mm -hmm. soon as she does, she notices that Spock is back to having no emotions, and she is so emotionally devastated that it kills off the spores for her, too. Right. She, she, she thought she had had love, finally, from him, but no, he had rejected it, and thus she is sad, and so she's like, oh, I'm no longer super happy all the time. Yeah. Mm. They activate the annoyance ray. And Hooray. everyone on the planet starts trying to kill each other. Yeah, it starts with minor scuffles, but eventually, like, oh, we're gonna try to, you know, hit each other's shovels, and like, hey, you two, stop fighting. Oh, I'm now fighting you too. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's kind of a miracle no one died. Yes. Well, maybe they did. They just didn't mention it. <laughs> Elias gets punched in the stomach, which stops him being spored, and then all of a sudden he just looks up and goes, "We haven't accomplished anything in three years. Look at this dude ranch we built." It's nothing. Boring. It's uh, mid-20th century or something, I guess. McCoy says that now they need to leave because without the spores, they're all going to die. Well, that's, that makes sense, actually. Elias is now all really, really glad to leave because they finally can, you know, leave planet and get some work done and whatever. So they all go aboard the ship and go to a starbase. Maybe find another planet someday. Later on the bridge... McCoy is looking back at, through the view screen and says this is the second time that man has been kicked out of paradise. And Kirk gives a speech about like, no, this time we left because man is meant to struggle and claw and fight for every inch of progress. Manly yeah, capitalism. Yeah, and you, you have to suffer in order to know that you should be doing things. Mm-hmm. I guess. They ask how Spock felt about all this. And Spock says, for the first time in my life, I was happy. The that's, end. That's kind of depressing, Spock. It's a very downer ending. A little bit. <laughs> Are we supposed to be glad that they left this planet? Because how they sort of frame it all is that, you know, it, it, at points it seems like there might be something nefarious going on, but it just seems like... They're all just kind of getting on this weird, you know, you know, biological drug trip sort of thing that is not actually that bad for them. Yeah, the the only way this episode works is if you yourself invent a downside to what's happened. Because yeah. the entire episode, like basically the whole first half of the episode, it's like, okay, they're getting... You know, these spore things, they're going to later reveal that this is like some sort of evil alien hive mind that doesn't care about the people or whatever, or it takes away your autonomy or makes you do self-destructive things for the good of the plants or whatever. Yeah, I think that uh, that, that side plot uh, kind of vanished in the rewrites. It's not even introduced <laughs> as a side plot. I was just expecting it because <laughs> otherwise nothing bad is happening. 
there's absolutely no downside to what's going on. Yeah, I mentioned that because uh, there were several different versions of this, and apparently in one of the uh, versions, uh, earlier versions of the script, there was some telepathic, uh, you know, hive mind thing going on, but I don't know where that would have gone. So Yeah. So, like, they... Fontana wanted to write this as a Spock love story. She said specifically that that one of the things she really wanted to do in the rewrites was play up this Spock love story. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, she's removed any negative thing about being on this planet, which means Kirk is just a dictatorial asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can't have fun, and neither can I. So, um yeah. Yeah, just by fiat. <laughs> the basic premise of this episode is Kirk is too angry and bitter to even be able to enjoy life when he is on drugs. Therefore, <laughs> no one else gets to either. You know, to, to a certain extent, there is maybe something to be said about the uh, consensual uh, nature or lack thereof of uh, getting uh, banned by the plants. That, uh, you know, someone could be, you know, yeah, so someone should be only entering this sort of uh, situation in a willing fashion, and that's pretty much not what happens. Uh, but they don't really go into that at all. It's just sort of, this is a thing that's happening, and everyone's cool with it now, but I'm, I have to be angry and not and resist it, because well, see, The thing <laughs> is, I agree with you on the consent aspect. They just expose people to this thing for no reason. But afterward... When everyone is off of these things, no one is going, oh, I'm glad that I'm off of this. Like, they tricked me into it, and I'm glad now that you have freed me. Mm -hmm. They're like, we just left paradise. Yeah, that was cool, but uh, I guess I got to get back to work. Yeah, it's basically like now you've ruined this for me. But all I can really do is keep going. And Kirk's all happy and going like, now you get to strive. Strive. (laughs) You will suffer like me and everyone else in the galaxy. (laughs) It's episodes like this that like, for how progressive some of the things in this show were, especially with like the casting and a few Mm -hmm. of the like little messages of like everyone can work together and whatever in the future this was such an establishment show yes <laughs> this episode is like so pure okay <laughs> this is like the most puritan thing i've ever seen in my life you, you have to be of this sort of frame of mind all the time and any sort of you know, escape from this uh, you know you know purely you know, applied uh, you know established sort of way of being and thinking and behaving well that's just that's just naturally bad and so you have to avoid it at all costs yeah they keep talking about like you have to work hard and strive and da 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 but what they mean is you have to hate every minute of what you're doing yes yeah, cuz yeah. the people that they say are not working hard are farmers they are farming mm-hmm. without any equipment that is one of the most difficult jobs to do so so you got to get the seed in the ground so you just got to dig a hole here okay you dug, dug your hole and you got your, your seed in now do it a thousand times and then take care of all the plants and then mm-hmm. you know prune everything and you know Weed. water them again and make sure everything's rotated properly it just this takes there's a reason that farmers like are, have a stereotype of being the hardest working people on the planet because they're the hardest working people on the planet 
Yes. <laughs> this isn't an easy life. It just they feel good doing it. Which, yeah. Yeah. They <laughs> feel good about what they're doing. They're not overly happy either. Like it's really interesting because in the Archons episode where you have the like hive mind thing happening, they show everyone as like weirdly off-puttingly unsettlingly happy that kind of like i don't know what's going on and i'm out of it kind of happy so i'm detached from reality but i'm smiling so it's all good yeah everyone on this episode is just content Mm -hmm. they even have some emotions like they get a little bit annoyed with kirk the you know, Elias there is like, yeah, I don't I don't want to leave and stop trying to force me. They don't have they're not completely unemotional. They're just contented. Yeah. There's there's no downside to anything that's happening in this episode, except for the fact that Kirk says they aren't striving hard enough. They're like suffering builds character, basically. Yeah, yeah you got to have your uh, Protestant work ethic here. Otherwise, you're nothing. There is maybe something to be said about that philosophy, but if you're just sort of insisting that that's the only way, I think we're going to have some issues. Is there something to be said for that philosophy? I don't know right now. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> See, when, so I said earlier, I like asked my mother about this episode because she's she's been a Star Trek fan since before I was alive. So, so maybe, maybe you only are alive because of Star Trek. Possibly. Ooh. And... She she reminded me of this thing that there's a there's a certain capitalist argument about socialist countries that the people in socialist nations, the ones that exist now, the ones in Europe that are functioning fine, not like old dictatorial ones, mm-hmm. that those people cannot actually be happy because too many of their necessities are taken care of. Therefore, they don't have to struggle for anything or grow. So so you mean the, the folks that I know overseas that are, you know, like creating fantastic you know, works of art or, you know, doing amazing feats of science. They're, they're not striving, I guess, you know, no. just because they don't have to worry about paying their, you know, doctor bill. Yeah, they're not striving <laughs> because apparently in our... In our, you know, Puritan capitalist philosophy, if you don't have to worry about getting food on the table, you can't grow as a person. Mm, Yeah, that doesn't seem quite right to me. Hmm. Now, see, this is very definitely a just flat out response to counterculturalism in the 1960s. Generally, yeah. (laughs) Even to the point that the writers of this episode believe that even pointing out some mild parallels between what the people in this episode are doing and the counterculture that existed at the time is enough for you to side with Kirk in everything he does. They don't even have to point out a bad side. They don't even have to point out any particular downside to what's going on. You're just supposed to recognize it and go, that seems like them hippies. Yeah, it's it's those those, those people that are marching in the street and getting high and, you know, they're going to be, you know, corrupt in our youth and such like that. Oh, even with the frickin drug thing, there was a um, there was this idea around this time period. This is when a lot of the famous 
kind of uh, hallucinogenic drug stuff was going on. They had, uh, you know, recently invented LSD and they were like doing some experiments with that mm -hmm. around this time period. Uh, it was actually very sanctioned. They were like doing it in, uh, they were doing it in universities and things like, you know, like Timothy Leary was, was doing stuff around this time period. He's probably yes. one of the more famous ones. Uh, but but the people who were doing this, like he was a professor. He he was working at a university, uh, purporting these studies. Uh, there there was like this kind of idea going on in that community at the time that all they needed to do to change the world was to get the right world leaders to try this stuff. Their uh, you know, their brain chemistry will be uh, changed in just such a fashion that they sort of realize you know. The, the the you know the good and the bad and the futility of you know of, uh, certain things and they'll be like coming together it's like wait we should like just kind of chill and like work out our differences and then everything will be great and we'll not have any wars we'll not have any you know you know, st you know struggles between countries we can work together to build a, a better future together it's this mind expanding idea mm -hmm. and a lot of it is this very connectiveness aspect and the way that in this episode specifically they keep talking about everyone belonging to everyone and you know i have joined you it's a very kind of there's a lot of connected language yeah and one of the things that one of the things that like you know psychoactive drugs do one of like the hallucinogens specifically like uh, psilocybin and lsd uh, one of the very common things that's reported is this. I don't have a good way to put it because I don't necessarily uh, think of the mind of awareness. in terms of a ego. Let's focus on the self. Yeah. Ego is kind of a, a, a disconnected word for me. But yeah, yeah. it's you, you, you basically get into what in some uh, multiplicity doctrines is called a self state. Mm -hmm. Which is difficult to describe. I've never actually been in one. You can you can achieve this through meditation and some other means. You don't have to take a hallucinogen. Uh, so I've talked to some people who have done this through meditation and uh, you know therapy. And the the way it's been described to me is basically this complete breakdown of the separation between your inner self and the outer world. Hmm. It basically feels like you have become connected to everything in the universe you no longer have that like physical separation of like people kind of describe this thing of like you have the outside world and the inside world and you're on the inside world looking out that stops i guess uh, this actually kind of reminds me of a brief conversation I had uh, just the previous uh, evening uh, with a friend of mine about how people uh, deal with stress and uh and and the he was sort of arguing that uh, some folks are better at dealing with stress of the internal sort versus stress versus of the uh, external sort. And I was sort of you know making arguments that you know with the proper sort of uh, mental training or you know you know other assistance, you can actually you know, transform your ability to you know master one or the other into you know the other. And that was you know, but sort of requires this dissolving of this you know you know, separation of of one world from a, from the other in your mind. Well, I guess I would argue, like, what is the actual difference between stress of the external and the internal? Because they're both affecting you internally. Oh, yeah. The internal one would be like, uh, you know, performance uh, anxiety. Like, am I good enough for this sort of thing? And so, uh, and then, then, you know, the external stuff is, 
well, uh, there, I might be getting, you know, I'll, uh, my, you know, I might have problems with like the bank and they're going to be trying to do this thing or my, you know, some other, some sort of external force is acting upon you as opposed to you having to act upon it. Well, the only particular difference with those is whether you have a feeling of control over it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, some people are better at dealing with that feeling, you know, lack of control, uh, compared to others. And, uh, you know, others are less certain about themselves. You know, even if they're completely competent, they're just, you know, like, well, I don't, I, how can I be certain of my skill sort of stuff? Yes. And, uh, and so you, 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 you know, my argument was that, you know, if you could sort of, you know, bridge that gap, that ability to handle the unknown, you know, all the external sort can be put to use to handle the unknown of your own skill. But that requires sort of, you know, dissolving that sort of separation quite a bit. Or the reverse, you know, the, you know, you know, managing the, the external uncertainty can be in some ways a skill that you can develop and, and learn how to master, like you are, you know, ma you know, mastering how to do advanced mathematics, perhaps. Hmm. Anyway, there's sort of a you know, divergence there. So, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, the something that I found kind of interesting when I was thinking about this stuff with the, like, psychedelic drugs and... So they had this thing of like, if we could give world leaders psychedelic drugs, they would feel this connectedness and, you know, have a greater understanding of how to better, you know, serve the community, mm -hmm. um, which weirdly enough is something that I've seen more and more people talking about recently with space travel, because there's this thing, um, I forget what they call it, but there's a very common thing that astronauts talk about where when you get to space and you see the world you'd feel this like everything is so small and connected and i can see all of it all at the same time yeah here is the planet earth the entire thing in front of me and there's so much else in this universe and it's so small yeah it's like it's it's, it's it gives you perspective <laughs> and the way they describe it is very similar and uh i believe it was uh buzz aldrin had a quote. I, I apologize for misremembering this, but there's there was this quote of like, I just want to take these squabbling world leaders and take them up there and shove their face in the window and go, look at this. That's all of it. Everything that you've ever known is there. And that little blue marble over there. So this idea that you can just, you know, expose the right people to this thing and take care of the world has act has like this was an idea that existed during this time period, mm -hmm. and it's something that they keep talking about kind of in this episode of like, we just need to get, you know, this person to be exposed to the flowers and everything's going to be okay and they'll be one of us and understand. We'll, we'll all come together and uh, we'll uh, build this community together and uh, you don't need to be flying off into any deep space missions. We'll be all good here. Yeah, and the... I don't know, the, the idea in this thing is basically like this mind-expanding connected thing is so bad because <laughs> it is deeply linked with an anti-materialist culture of the time. And, and this must be fought against. Oh, God. Mm. Yeah, and as we've seen, especially in Europe and uh, like Sweden, other countries that have embraced more socialism... There is nothing inherently disconnected about a, you know, more socialistic mindset and materialism. You can, like, just because at, like, at this time period, this kind of mental expanding 
stuff was being practiced by people who, as a response to the military-industrial complex forming around the Vietnam War, were purposely being anti-materialist. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was part of the culture. But that was part of the culture that also existed alongside this idea of mental expansion. One does not beget the other. And this, so this one was weird for me because this, this striving thing is so against my personal philosophy. It was actually really difficult to like, I really, really wanted Spock to bash Kirk's brain in and, you know, go back to the planet and live happily. Spock, you're so close. You just had to take pleasure in the act or something. I don't know. (laughs) And what are we supposed to think now? Like Spock is better off never being able to be happy again. Yeah, you know, and you know that that constant logical perfection, I guess, that that computer brain that Kirk was insulting him with. I guess that's good. Yeah, as many times as they have criticized Spock for not having emotion and talked about how his logic is bad and this, you know, human human unbridled emotion to the point of absurdity is the only way to do things. But now he, he's happy, happy forever. That's terrible. But only anger. This series talks a lot about negative emotions, which is a mm-hmm. concept I find frankly offensive. But like, you know, negative emotions like anger and rage and barbarism we're a barbaric race those are the things that always 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 save everyone so so when this stuff comes up again and again in this in the original series here i can't help but think about the first episode of uh the next generation where q is like you're a barbaric race and you're you're just terrible basically pointing out that you know all the stuff that was considered good in the original series is is actually a, an awful thing yeah <laughs> and, and Picard's like no we've gone beyond that seriously uh <laughs> <laughs> the more i watch next generation i've been going through another watch through recently uh the more i think that there's a lot of episodes that are just poking fun at the original series a little bit (laughs) there's nothing that's a direct remake but there's enough stuff that's like hey remember how the original series worked off of this theme here's an episode where we work off that theme but well yes you know either well or sort of turning it on its head to make it more interesting or better or a better point and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So, 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 so you want me to sort of go, you know, you know uh, touch upon something that does exactly this, that sort of turns the entire concept of this episode on its head. Mm-hmm. It's actually Deep Space Nine, mind you, and ah. it, it's called Paradise. So very, very similar names and all that. Uh, it's the episode where Cisco and O'Brien uh, crash land, uh, crash land a uh, runabout on a uh, a planet, and uh, there's like this weird group of folks there they're like no we don't like technology it's just awful and there's a field that protects prevents any of the technology from working and the, the you know the lady who leads this little colony is like yeah we believe in hard work and you know and you know breaking our backs every day to make everything uh, survive and uh, work and ever all of us must survive and we're all just barely getting through it all the same and this is great this is good for the human soul etc etc basically everything that kirk seems to be claiming you know, is the better way, except instead it's instead of the, the people from space being the ones who are, you know, pushing this agenda, it's the it's the, the colonists. And uh, there's also an, an aspect of we're being you're being brought in the situation in an unwilling manner and are being forced to sort of live this. 
uh, just like it, you know, you know, the taste of paradise here. And, uh, you know, and in the end, you know, there's, it's all sort of, you know, undone in a certain degree. And, but instead of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, people are just sort of being cool with what happened. Like, yeah, we kind of need to arrest this cult leader person. Yeah, it's a very weird turnaround. It was kind of reminding me of the second to last Next Generation movie, mm, yeah. uh, Star Trek Insurrection, yes. which is interesting because they, they find a planet that is basically this. Mm-hmm. You know, the people have were once technologically advanced, but have decided to return to a more agrarian lifestyle and have used that to expand their own mental awareness mm-hmm. in a very direct way and that is framed as so laudable and good that the enterprise spends the entire episode defying starfleet to protect them yeah so basically you know if the kirk was you know there they'd be you know the you know uh, picard and the crew would be like fighting him yes like they're basically <laughs> fighting kirk which is like hey yeah we can exploit this planet for our own gain it's like, yeah, but these people are like, you know, living in a like healthy agrarian lifestyle with mental expanding powers, like, you know. And that's groovy, man. Come on, just let them be. So I got kind of reminded by this thing that I've been doing off and on. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to do as much of it recently as I want, but there's this practice, this kind of, uh, it's a kind of exercise, sort of. It's like a physical therapy thing mm-hmm. that was developed by a by a guy after he was recovering from a car accident. And it's called uh, Feldenkrais. Can't say I've heard of that. Yeah, not a lot of people have. Uh, it was it was developed by Doctor Feldenkrais, named after him. And the idea is that um, difficult things are bad. I've got a a quote from uh, one of the people who developed it. I think they, this is from uh, Doctor Moshi Feldenkrais. Took me a minute to read that first name there. <laughs> Yeah, it was a bit of a name. The uh, the quote that I just liked, and it reminded me of this episode, and I wanted, is, uh, whatever we do well does not seem to be difficult to us. We may even venture to say that movements we find difficult are not carried out correctly. The struggle, you know, the you know, thing that you struggle at is, you know, maybe you're trying to, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know maybe it's important to accomplish but yeah, given that how hard you have to sort of work on it, you're going to be making errors. Well, you're going to be making errors. This is this practice is very physical, so it's a lot about kind of physical movement and learning how to move a bit better. It's very popular with dancers. Uh, but the basic idea, which I think you could carry on into other things, is if you are struggling, you are doing it wrong, and doing it wrong incurs damage. Yeah. So if you are struggling to do something, a physical action, especially something like walking or standing or something that you have to do over and over and over and over, mm-hmm. even if it's a little bit of struggle, it's still incurring damage and that damage is going to build cumulatively over time. Repetitive stress injuries, in fact. Yeah. So the idea behind this is practice it, figure out how you can move right for you in a way that is not a struggle, and then practice that so that you can, you know, not incur these these injuries. Yeah, you, know, you want to be able to do maybe do this move at some point, but you, know, you don't try to go for it right away. You know, see if you can sort of adapt your, your, your the movements that do work well, you know, slowly into that perhaps. And then, yeah. you know, you, you can sort of pick up a new, you know, skill that way. I, I guess as, as far as sort of like the mental side of things like that, um, you know, as far as me and my you know study, you know, physics and math and things like that, 
You know, there were certain things I sort of recognized early on that I was fairly good at. And if I could sort of reframe things in those sort of contexts or, or, or think about them in that sort of uh, fashion, it actually make things way easier. And I was much able, you know, much more efficiently able to sort of understand concepts and, you know, you know, process, you know, you know, the mechanics of mathematics. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, I, I'm 100% on board with this here. <laughs> yeah, and I, I liked the quote idea with this because it is this kind of thing. If in all things, as like learning, you mentioned, like we have mm -hmm. this system of rote memorization, which no one finds enjoyable, easy, or pleasant. Nope. And like everyone talks about the learn it till the test ideology of school, mm -hmm. where you memorize something long enough to write it down again in a month and then forget it. Yeah, well, I knew this once, but it now is irrelevant, so my brain doesn't care. But if you think about it, just in, in everything you do, the actual struggle is in learning how to do it. Mm -hmm. Like once you once you are familiar with how to do it, a lot of it becomes not difficult. So in that way, if it is difficult, you are not doing it right. Yeah. And there's something for like this this struggle idea I have a problem with. Like there's a difference between the struggle and the you know challenge there is challenging yourself oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. because you find the challenge enjoyable and i think that's something that we've lost sight of like you know yeah, challenging yeah. yourself to do Kirk things certainly lost sight of it <laughs> yes challenging yourself to do things is good for you mm -hmm. to an extent but once you hit a point where the challenge becomes unpleasant you are doing it too much and you are damaging yourself. Like it is it is no longer useful to you and you need to listen to that. Yeah. Everyone has experienced this. There's the pleasant amount of challenge. Like you're trying a new thing, you're trying to learn something and it's like really hard to do, but you keep coming back to it because you find the process enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, I really need to get this done and I hate every single second of it and I struggled through and it feels awful and I never want to touch it again and I hate the thing that came out of it. I think part of that might be one of the reasons I left my previous job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like doing this anymore and sure there's a big challenge to it, but it's just so painful. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> and see, the painful amount of challenge like incurs burnout, incurs yeah. a lot of negative consequences. Exactly. Like this, this world that they set up in this episode is not one where the people have not challenged themselves or strived or done anything. They've eschewed technology. They've made things purposefully more difficult for themselves. Mm -hmm. And they've still built up a community and a farm and like something that looks like very now modern architecture yeah, they are surviving they are thriving they are able to make do with what they got yeah it's weird because they are they're showing them living in a very what for the time would be a fairly nice modern setting yeah it's not like they're showing them you know living a struggling agrarian lifestyle where they're barely feeding themselves and living in dirt huts yeah everyone seems clean they seem well you know well taken care of they're healthy, which is, you know, partially due to the spores, but, you know, they're obviously not, like, missing limbs or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah. and and I think the health thing weirds me out so much. Because they, they've even, they have taken away the one thing that they have always used to demonize, like, mind-expanding drugs. So it's it's going to give you a heart attack or cause you to have cancer or... Um, Gonna give you a mental illness, and that's always terrible, right? Oh my God! Yeah, but they they took that away. They said not only 
does this expand your mind, make you feel connected and make you feel all contented and happy. It also makes you healthier than you have ever been or would have been possible to be. So so in some ways, everyone on the Enterprise is like, you know, you know, they, they got like some extra hit points now. It's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So it's just strange. Like Kirk is just a mean old man who hates everyone. I mean, Kirk is the establishment of the time period, the... I see you having fun. I don't get to have fun and neither do you. The only weird thing is that it's being portrayed as something heroic. If they really wanted Kirk to sort of like come to a a moment of, no, what we're, you know, I, I have to be, ang- I, you know, he gets angry with the situation, you know, make it about his duty. It's like we have like orders to follow and me not following those orders makes me feel bad. And then, then he sort of snaps out of it from that. That would be like a much more natural sort of way to go about it. But no, he's just like, oh, I have to be a curmudgeon. Yep. Everyone else is happy and that bothers me. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Two small, uh, a small thing first. So at some point during the episode, uh, it's rumored that McCoy's gone off to uh, create something called a mint julep, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's a, a drink involving uh, you know, bourbon and some you know, other cool stuff and like mint and things like that. So it's basically a cocktail drink. And they, and they see later that he's drinking it under a tree. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, this is about the time when the, the crazy sound effect starts happening to cause everyone to get angry on the planet. I have a fan theory here. Yes. McCoy's just a being drunk. <laughs> Maybe. I thought this was weird because he's about to enjoy his mint julep, which also yes. the existence of fermented grain alcohol means that this society makes fermented grain alcohol. Yep, they have booze here. Which is another difficult thing to do. And exists, like, like one for grain storage, but you imagine they wouldn't have the similar problems then. So they just make a drink that they enjoy because they like to have this thing around. Like, this is not a non-striving society. But (laughs) anyway... and this also implies that you know that they're you know that they have been producing fruit crops not just enough to eat but also to make booze. Yes. So. <laughs> but also as soon as McCoy snaps out of the spore thing, he throws his drink away. <laughs> Alcohol abuse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know I, I'm not a drinker at all myself, but I do find that you know, you know concept of you know of someone actually throwing a drink being alcohol abuse quite appropriate i think anyway. <laughs> and uh so the, the, the i guess the more interesting thing i had is um the the nature of these plants they come from space right yes and it's drifted through the deep space and enjoy these uh, virtual rays or whatever they are called and they they came to this planet so this means that they came from somewhere right mm-hmm. so like another planet and they might be have gone to many other planets too and and, you know, ended up there, and there could be millions of plants across the galaxy with these things, right? Are you going to say that magic mushrooms are these things? No, but I'm ah. going to talk about uh, it as an example of panspermia. Ah. Yes. So, uh, for those not in the know, uh, it's basically the hypothesis that that uh, life on Earth and potentially other planets has all come from a extrasolar or extraplanetary source of some sort. Uh, that there is maybe somewhere in the galaxy or even, you know, further beyond that, a planet where life uh, originated first and then, you know, through various processes, uh, you know, expanded across the galaxy, hopping from planet to planet, sort of seeding things and providing the basic microorganisms in order for uh, life to, uh, you know, spread, evolve, and to eventually come to us. And uh, this is all very hypothetical stuff and is really hard, to, kind of hard to prove, but it is kind of interesting concept. And, uh, 
You know, Gepel, what do you think about it? I think it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, it's hard to know. I believe that some of the evidence for this is they found some like ev evidence of asteroids that may or may not have had, you know, uh, um, fossilized microbes. And yeah. they at some point found uh, microorganisms in the upper, upper, upper atmosphere that would have had no business being there. Where are these guys come from? But yes, it's very difficult to study because you would have to get a space probe basically into space with 100% uncontaminated uh, collection samples in order to find any evidence of this. Uh, the, you know, the, the, I guess the other way they could potentially do it is to go out into space and, and find some sort of uh, you know, microbe out there that is just so radically different than anything on Earth that it's sort of like, well, this obviously didn't come from here sort of stuff. But yeah. that's, you know, would sort of... You know, it'd be sort of excluded from the from the whole concept in the in the first go because mm. that it would have already been here. So I find one of I find Pansperia to be one of those interesting but not particularly relevant to me ideas. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's a very <laughs> interesting kind of thing. It would be it would be very cool to know whether this is true or not, just for you know the histor historic record and and things but like where life on earth originated is more or less immaterial to my life now <laughs> to a certain degree yeah you know i have to agree with you there um though uh, there is a couple sort of i guess uh weird consequences i sort of think about when i think about uh, you know concepts like this uh that kind of comes in with some other stuff i've learned about uh you know z uh, you know astrobiology uh, sort of things so there you know i'm not obviously up to date on all the research on that front but there was a at least a few years ago uh, when I was back in grad school uh, you know, a friend of mine was uh, doing some research on uh, the chirality problem in biological life form and their molecular structure and how it may relate to uh, certain uh, you know peculiar things about the weak uh, you know force in a, you know the sort of your fundamental forces you know electromagnetic force gravity strong nuclear force weak nuclear force so the weak version of that uh, nuclear force stuff there, uh, you know, might, if it sort of behaves in a certain way on a very, 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 very subtle level, would produce over the, you know, you know, uh, entire universe, a certain pattern in how uh, biological um, uh, molecules uh, are put together. And, and so if you go into space and find everything has a certain um, arrangement of the, of the, uh, the atoms and the, and the molecules, that would maybe suggest that. But if there's, and sort of, if you, you know, if you don't find the mirror of that anywhere, that's sort of a very strong indication. The, you know, but if that subtle, uh, you know, you know, very, uh, you know, subtle thing about the weak nuclear force is not a thing, then you'd get basically 50-50 of each sort of arrangement. However, uh, something like panspermia would actually make that sort of uh, uh, determination much more difficult because you'd basically have some you know origin planet where it came out with one arrangement and then started spreading across uh, you, know, you know large areas of space and everything in that large area of space had the same arrangement but not because this weak nuclear force you know, uh, uh, you know result but because it just all came from the same source and so that kind of makes the determination of this you know yeah, very strange and very subtle, you know, uh, uh, physics question more difficult to determine if this is actually a thing. Hope that all made sense. <laughs> On some level. Okay. I, I'm, t I'm still pretty out of it for my, you know, being you know, with the plague here. So I'm hoping I'm, <laughs> I'm managing here. <laughs> I find the uh, idea interesting because it's, 
it's still kind of interesting to me that everyone talks about it in a, you know, life would have originated on another planet somewhere that then, you know, blew up or something and spread bacteria everywhere. But I find it's an interesting concept of like, what if life can spontaneously form in space? Yeah. And then just seeds, it's just like floats around until it hits some kind of planet where it can live on. Yeah, though it's been a while since I've uh, seen something on such uh, frontiers. Uh, I have read into articles uh, saying that like they found some pseudo building blocks of you know potential biological life in like nebula. And it's like it's kind of weird, <laughs> but you know not not anything you know like actually alive. Just sort of here's some of the building blocks that could very easily be put into uh, these uh, sort of. You know, you know, turned into life in the right conditions. Yes. So, yeah. And spermia, it's weird. It uh, kind of requires a, you know, a, a means to get off a planet. You know, you know, maybe the planet's being destroyed, or maybe there's like an asteroid impact just kicks off a little piece or something like that. Or even aliens are behind it, the whole thing, and, you know, there's, there's, there's craziness going on. But, uh, you know. Anyway, the second part they need is, of course, uh, that the life forms that you're transporting are actually able to survive. But given that on Earth we have, you know, life forms that can exist at the crushing depths of the bottom of the ocean with, you know, crazy high temperatures or crazy low temperatures, I don't think that's too out of the question. Well, we know for a fact that, especially since this episode mentions spores, yes, uh, we know for a fact through experiments that we've done in space that spores can survive space. Yes. <laughs> because spores are just these incredibly little hardy hardy ways of spreading dna around that just cannot be destroyed by anything you need a, a whole lot of radiation and then maybe even then more so but you're not gonna get that kind of concentration very easily yeah well in this one apparently they even just thrive off of radiation so even better <laughs> so it's sort of like photosynthesizing death rays cool <laughs> i want to be able to do that well the spore thing gets us into the uh the mushroom stuff that i think we've talked about a little bit on previous episodes Indeed. <laughs> but the psilocybin and what's called magic mushrooms. There was this kind of interesting thing I was reading a while ago. I now cannot remember the book it was mentioned in. Uh, or, well, I remember the book that it was mentioned in, but I don't remember the book it was referencing. The, in, uh, in Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, there was this interesting theory of mushroom and non-mushroom cultures. Hmm. But basically, like some cultures embraced you know, psychedelic mushrooms as a part of their shamanistic practices, and some cultures eschewed them and turned them into something, like, undesirable. And the, I still don't understand exactly why, but it does seem to have a very distinct cultural split, culture to culture, whether or not they accept, you know, uh, these fungal mind-altering drugs or not, and what that says about how the culture develops. So it's like a uh, phase transition of uh, sort of a barrier. You know, one area is one way, the other one's with the other. There's sort of different energy levels in a sort of psychosocial sort of sense. Hmm. Yes. Sorry, and... so, sorry, I'm thinking about field theory again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very weird divide and nobody's quite sure. Like they haven't done a lot of research on it because doing research on psychedelic drugs is somewhat frowned on, even anthropological research. But, you know, the fact that they used spores in this episode makes it a very very direct link they're not being subtle you guys want your mushrooms here well we got your spores Woo, right in your face yeah the spores that's bad it's bad to be on mind-altering drugs even if they make you super happy and healthy and have no foreseeable downsides and uh, you know, allow spock to finally 
get you know get get with the lady there. Yes, which that sounds like the anti-drug rhetoric of the '80s. I'm not completely sure where the anti-drug rhetoric of the '60s lied. Uh, me neither. I, I guess just sort of you know, just hate on the hippies and hope everyone follows along. I guess. Yes. Well, the '60s is where a lot of our drug control stuff stemmed from. Before this period of time, you didn't really have uh, laws about drugs in general. Mm-hmm. The uh, the FDA didn't actually exist yet. Yes. So, you know, the the hippie movement, the crackdown on the counterculture and mind ex- mind expanding drugs in general is kind of what brought in drug control. I mean, in addition to the uh to the like racially motivated demonizing of marijuana. We got got to have a reason to be we can arrest those guys over there yeah you know we've been talking about the mind expansion bit of this quite a bit with the countercultural thing which is definitely a ish like part of the issues that were in the time but i do like i feel like i don't want to gloss over the fact that a lot of the drug control rhetoric coming out of here was just a way to justify racist police practices gotta have your excuse to you know do something you were going to do anyway but now, you, now, if people ask questions, you can like, oh no, I'm not being racist. I'm just arresting them because of drugs. Even when you have uh, politicians and you know, law enforcers being quoted as saying, like, ah, we can demonize these Mexicans and African Americans who you know use marijuana by making people hate marijuana. Hooray! Hooray! And uh, people were like, okay, that sounds like a great idea. Hmm. And we could pretend we're not racist even when we say we are. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they were flat out saying it. Everyone was yeah. fine with being racist at the time. Yeah. <laughs> they just were uncomfortable putting into legislation. Mm-hmm. At least we'd gotten that far. They were now, un- we'd reached the point in American history where they were uncomfortable writing it down in laws. So I guess that's good. You know, it's like, okay, things might not sustain the, uh, you know, at the Supreme Court anymore on this stuff here. So we need uh, we need a, a, a workaround. And so, yeah, that seems to happen a lot, you know? Yes, it does. Yeah. Can we get yeah. one episode of this thing done where we don't have to talk about racism? Um, I hope so. I Fingers crossed. Might, I mean, we'd have to watch a show from another planet at that like, for that, I think. Yeah, you know, maybe we'll get some opportunities in the future. Yes. <laughs> you, we can't critique a show that was created in any culture that exists on the planet for the last 200 years without it having been influenced by racially motivated mercantilism and capitalism so we need to go to a different planet and try to determine something you know either find something or maybe even create it ourselves man yes especially this freaking show which seems to just be so establishment it hurts progressive on some things super not in others (laughs) yes progressive Hmm. and screen time only as far as i can tell yeah obviously this show had a major impact on the way some people see the world and you know Apparently, it's like not something that I can appreciate as someone who grew up in postmodernism. It is a very modernist take on science fiction, and I think that's where some of the cultural struggles come in. Because I, I like most people who are interacting with stuff on the internet right now, grew up strictly in a postmodernist mindset, and I cannot. It's very difficult for me to understand modernism in general because of how little I had to examine my postmodernist thinking growing up. Alright, it sounds like Izix is ready to go to sleep, so I think it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Woo-ha! 
COVID in my voice managed to survive this one. Oh, oh, yes. oh dear. Physics, I understand you have some awards for our contestants. Oh, yes, we got some uh, fantastic contestants here. Just totally fabulous. The first uh, award's going to Sandoval and his, uh, you know, all the, uh, the plants on the planet there. It's called the Pleasure Planet Award. What does he win, Gapwin? Sandoval wins nothing, probably. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Hmm, he really has dropped out, then. He's dropped out of his entire colonial ambitions here. Oh, my. Our second award goes to Kirk for using his negative emotions to affect a nominally positive question mark outcome. Uh, this award is called the Bad is Actually Good Award. What does he win, Gapwin? Kirk wins his frickin' weird rape personality from the earlier episode, who's apparently oh, yeah. saving the day again. Oh, the enemy within strikes once more. Oh, my. Hmm. Our third award is the Best Day of Your Life Award, and this award goes to Spock, the poor bastard, for he only gets to feel happy this once. What does he win, Gapwin? Spock wins a framed photo of his love interest who he can stare at whimsically later, remembering that one time in his life he was happy. He becomes a goth. Hmm. Goth Spock. I can get behind that. Fan art. Go. Activate. Yeah. <laughs> Our final award for today is the No Hard Feelings Award. For Kirk, just kind of brushing off that whole fight to the death thing with Spock there, and Spock just kind of being cool with, you know... Not getting uh, court-martialed over it. It's all great, guys. What do they win, uh, Gepwin? Kirk and Spock win that uncomfortable moment where you realize that the powerful get to decide whether or not someone can have negative feelings about their racist attitudes. This seems like a very uncomfortable award they've gotten there. Hmm. Anyway, that's the last award I got. Take it away, Gepwin. Wow. That's been a wonderful series of awards for our contestants on this deeply confusing, confusing episode. Thank yes. you all for joining us on the galaxy's favorite game show. <laughs> oh, that was a thing. I yep. I did not. It was it was a complete coincidence that I started reading more about you, know, uh, about drug culture and the countercultural and mind expansion stuff right before we started this podcast, and I really did not think it would be so applicable so often. <laughs> uh, you know, the '60s it happens. Yeah, I suppose I didn't quite think how much of the '60s cult like countercultural stuff would be hated on. By Star yeah. Trek. Yeah, I guess they're trying to be, like, topical, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Well, we go from this weird anti-connectedness establishment episode to what's held up as one of the better progressive -y episodes in the series about loving those, even though love and understanding, even for th things that you find so completely different and un-understandable and alien. Cool. So you mean we might have everyone, like, come out, like, not looking like assholes or something? Maybe. The next Fingers episode crossed. is Devil in the Dark. Wait a moment. It's the devil. Doesn't that mean someone's bad? Yes, but maybe through the power of love and understanding, we don't have to hate each other. Oh, sweet. We sway back and forth and sing Kumbaya. 
Excellent. Let's get some more of those flowers over here. <laughs> yeah, maybe they still are just on the after effects of the flowers and they're like, hey, there's an alien. Maybe we should think about whether to kill it. Well, let's like see if we want, if it just wants a hug. So yeah, Devil in the Dark is usually one of the like episodes that people cite of like this is what makes Star Trek Star Trek. This like sciencey stuff and then the understanding of other cultures and investigating and not just running off Buck Rogers style to kill and stab everything in the face. So I guess we should look forward to it then. Yes, uh, you can find out more about that, as will we, next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, too deep we delve there and woke the nameless fear. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcasts, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash drizix, and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>